0: This morning, we're starting a new sermon series called The Mystery Revealed, and our scripture reading is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them.
1: Well, hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Nate. I haven't met you yet. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Just so you know, I don't know if that chili is going to be there afterwards, but that looks pretty good. I don't know. That's all I'll say. Um, so, hey, here's the deal. Redeemer vision is to see our city renewed by the gospel. And over the next five weeks, we're going to be in a series looking at what does it mean to do that together? What does it look like for us to live out this vision together? And do that, we're going to be looking at our values of gospel, community, and mission through this, this letter from Paul to a church at Ephesus. And there's a theme that runs through this letter, it's actually summarized in a term, and it's the term mystery. In chapter 1, Paul says this, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Now, um, I love mysteries. Um, Our family right now is watching the Sherlock Holmes series, the one like from 2010 or whatever. Uh, You know, you're just hooked in every episode, which, by the way, is like 90 minutes long, okay? Uh, So it's more like we're watching movies, right? And so, right, you're asking questions like, who did it? What's the motive? And then you're just kept until the very end, and there's all these twists along the way. Well, as Paul is writing about this mystery... The backdrop, the subtext of this letter is this. The world is broken. Uh, The world is relationally and spiritually broken. It is out of harmony. And we all know it. We all feel it. And Paul is saying this. There's God has a plan to actually bring order, to bring about a restoration of harmony to restore that which has been broken. And Paul when he says the term mystery, it's it's not like we think of mystery. When we think of mystery, we think, well what's the clues and who needs to be smart enough to figure it out. When Paul uses the word mystery, it means this: that which was hidden has actually now been revealed. In other words, the mystery is no longer hidden. It's gone viral. It's gone public. And here's what Paul says the mystery is. The ancient promise of how God was going to restore harmony to this world. It has now been revealed and it's all found in the person of Christ. That's the mystery that's gone public. Paul is saying this that he's summing up the entire world in the person of Christ. One one commentator put it this way, that Christ is the main point. And these first two weeks of the series, we're going to see how Christ brings harmony to a broken world. And that's what's called the gospel. And the last three weeks, we're going to see how the gospel reshapes every aspect of our life. So that's a lot, but let me pray and we'll get in. Father, would you enable your spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, to give light to the eyes of each of our hearts, that we might know the hope that's available in Christ, that we might experience his power and his presence afresh, that's found in him. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, who are you? Like, if we were to sit over coffee, what would you tell me about yourself? I'm sure, well, we'd probably know each other's name by then, right? We'd know that. We'd probably tell you about your, maybe your family, where you grew up. But how about this question? What is your true self? One of the things about our current moment in our culture is we answer that question by looking within. Or we might say something like this, I am who other people think of me. But Paul, as he's writing these Christians, he begins from a different place. He begins from a point of the mystery that's in Christ. That's his starting point. And here's what he's trying to do. He wants these Christians he's writing to know who they are in light of the mystery. He's wanting these Christians to know their identity. And there's two things that are helpful here. First, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is really helpful because these 10 verses, they are a great summary of what is available in the mystery that's in Christ in the gospel. But second, if you're a Christian, I would just say this. Think about this. Paul is writing to Christians and he's trying to tell them who they are. Which means maybe we don't really know who we are. Or maybe it just hasn't worked itself all the way in. And so actually, this morning, what Paul is suggesting for you and for me is what is foundational in the Christian life is The gospel. That's actually what you need. And you need to know, and I need to know, who you are and who I am. And that's all found in Christ. And here's what Paul says. Here's what God's doing in Christ. God takes dead people and he makes them alive and he makes them for good. That's the gospel. God takes, in Christ, takes dead people and he makes them alive And he makes them for good. So four things this morning. Yeah, you get four. Okay, four. Usually it's three. You get an analysis by Paul. We're going to see a power. We're going to see a gift. And we're going to see his workmanship. So let's begin with this analysis. Um, You know, as Paul begins to kind of form their identity, who they are in Christ, he begins with an analysis of the human condition. And he speaks to Christians about who they used to be. And to be honest, this is one of the most succinct, and I would suggest devastating, in the best possible way, analysis of the human condition. Because look at how Paul begins in verse 1. He says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Uh, Paul says the starting point is not that you're bad, but that you're dead. And that's a little bit confusing because we think of it in terms of just physically, like I have a pulse, I'm not dead, but Paul's talking about here spiritually. And you go back to the beginning of the book of Genesis, and you see God make this wonderful world, and then Adam and Eve eat the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat of, and then what happens next is everything breaks down, and you see how this deadness, because God said, if you eat this, you'll die, and they don't die right away, at least not physically, right? Right? But you see this worked out. They hide from God. Their relationship with God is broken. They begin to blame one another. Adam says, you know, the woman you gave me, she did that. Uh, They hide from one another. They, They cover themselves with leaves because they're full of shame. Spiritual death affects every aspect of their life. And Paul is saying this, apart from the mystery in Christ, you and I may have a pulse, but spiritually speaking, we are walking dead. In fact, the very next phrase describes the fruit of that. It says, we used to walk in the trespasses and sins. In other words, the human condition is not merely that we mess up or that we make mistakes, although we do but the human condition is actually one of open rebellion against the God who made us. And then Paul goes on in this analysis to describe three other forces that have us in bondage. In other words, we're not free. The first one is in verse 2. It says this, that we followed the course of this world. And, And that means that the systems, the values... They in our culture that collectively are opposed to this good God's rule, that we are in lockstep with them, that we are following them, that they have mastered us. Um, you know, there's a lot of work being done out there in our culture about how our environment affects us, how it shapes us. Paul actually says, that's true. It does shape us. We do follow it. But let me say this. One of the ways that the world masters us is it simply tells lies. Let me give you one common one. You are only worth what you have. You are only worth what you have. I mean, think of it for a moment, there are billions that are spent to make you believe that, to live by that. Um, and And that lie shapes us in a lot of different ways. Let me give you one kind of of out there uh, example. But over the years, there's actually been a number of situations where kids have killed other kids over a pair of Air Jordan shoes. Now, those are some great shoes, okay? But we all know, like, that is horrible, But underneath that is the lie that you are what you have. Now, that may be an extreme example, and I'm assuming that no one has done that here. But here's the point. If that's what's shaping us, based on what you have or what I have or what I don't have, then that just makes us a sucker for materialism. Our identity is fragile, Because the standards keep changing. And our relationships are marked by what he has or what she has. And we treat each other accordingly. And Paul says, that's, by the way, that's just one lie. And Paul says, you're lockstep apart from the mystery in that. But it doesn't just stop there. Paul goes on. Paul says, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So, what's that mean? There's um, in the ancient world, particularly the group that Paul is writing, the air formed the intermediate space between earth and heaven, and that was a place where evil spirits dwelt. And what Paul is saying there is that there is a prince, there is a leader of those spirits, whose purpose and goal is to keep you from God. And that apart from the mystery, we are in lockstep. Now, I know as soon as I say that, some of you are saying, "Uh, okay, you lost me there. It sounds very regressive. Sounds like, yeah, I mean, people back then, they were superstitious. They believed in those things. But we've gotten beyond this. And if I could just for a moment, just say this. We're going to cover this in week five, <laughs> okay? We're going to talk a lot about that in week five, because that's where Paul goes in chapter six. But if you're skeptical on this one, one pastor will put it this way, the Bible is the most complex resource about the problem of evil in the world. It's the most complex. You see, most of us in our world, we, are, we reduce it to systems or we, or we reduce it to people. And the Bible won't do it. The Bible is the most complex. And so let me just ask you, Madison, would you consider being open-minded? We'll get there week five. All right, hold on. So Paul, as he beginning this analysis, look at this. See, these two forces that we're mastered by are outside of us, but now Paul moves to what's inside of us. And this is what he says in verse three among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The original language, the word passions, it means to over-desire. Augustine, the fourth century bishop, he would put it this way, that we by nature, we attach our lives to things that we think will make us happy. And we build our significance and our security and our status on those things. And that's the problem, because we weren't meant to build our identity there. We were created by God to build our identity there. And what happens is, we value career and family and relationships over God. It's disordered loves. And because you and I were made to serve God, to love God supremely, We are under his just judgment. I mean, that is quite an analysis, right? Paul is saying, you're dead. You're in bondage. I would be crying too. (laughs) Okay, good. You know, and here's the point. I remember in college uh, when I was digging into this passage and I remember struggling with this because I, I would, it's almost one of those moments where you're like, is this really true of me? Because certainly as I think about these things, I could look in the world and I could see some people where I go, yeah, that makes sense. That's the picture of them, right? But it was hard for me to see that. But one of the things that's helpful to consider, and Dane Ortland, a pastor, points this out, that one of the unique things in this passage is Paul himself includes himself in the analysis. And he says, he says, we all lived once in the passions of our flesh. And if you know anything about Paul's origin, he was a very religious person. In fact, he would describe himself related to the moral commandments as being blameless. In other words, he's a good dude. And yet Paul himself puts himself right in the midst of this analysis. And here's what that means. It means you can be a walking dead person who breaks all the rules, or you can be a walking dead person who keeps all the rules. Do you get what the Bible is saying? The the problem with the world, the problem with us is far more deeper than we even imagine. In other words, you could say this, you could be here this morning saying, I don't want to live how God wants me to live. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That's one way of living in rebellion to God. But you could also be this way, you could say, listen, I'm going to keep all the rules and when I keep all the rules, God, you owe me. They're both ways of keeping in control. They're both ways of you being your own God. God. And Paul says, apart from the mystery, that's the starting point. Now, let me say one other thing you might be thinking. Um, You might be thinking, I feel horrible about myself right now, Pastor. (laughs) This analysis is, this does not help my self-esteem, right? This is devastating. One of the things you have to think about here is this, is because this is sometimes people talk about this and they do use this as a form of manipulation. They talk about sin, they make you feel bad. They talk about whatever, and they, the, the point is to condemn. But what is Paul doing here? Paul is doing like any good doctor would do. He has to give you the correct diagnosis of what's wrong. Otherwise, you will not understand the medicine that you need. It does no good to treat the symptoms and not the root cause. And here's what that means. As Paul says, if you're dead, if that's the starting point, if you are in bondage to forces outside of you and inside of you, you and I need more than rules. You and I need more than counseling. And by the way, rules are not bad, nor is counseling bad. I'm not saying that. But don't you understand? You and I need something much more. And that's where Paul goes next. He says you need a power outside of yourself. Now, let me just be a little bit of a grammatical nerd for a moment. Verses 1 to 7 are one sentence. In the original language, one sentence. And there is one main verb. And the main verb is in verse 5. Let's just look for a moment at verses 4 and 5. He writes this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and here's the main verb, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The main verb What God is saying is God takes dead people mastered and enslaved and he makes them alive. I don't know who said this but this is is really important. The gospel is not making bad people good. It's taking dead people and making them alive. And consider two things about this, this power. Consider the method of it and the motive. The method... Every point in verses four to seven is all connected to the mystery, which is Christ. In verse 5, it says, made alive together with Christ. Verse 6, raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The method of God's restorative work is Christ. It's a person, it's all in him. That's the mystery revealed. And so much could be said here, but let me think about this way. When we think about power in this world and how people use power, how do people most often use power? They most often use it to either control other people, to protect themselves, to use other people. But notice how God uses his power. It is a self-giving power. God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, enters. And what does he do? He comes in weakness. How does he wield his power? He comes to serve and to lay his life down and die, which is how we can be forgiven. And then he rises from the dead, which is how we can be raised from the dead. And then He see it at the right hand of God. He's all above that. And he says, that's yours too if you're in me. How does he use His power? He uses it to serve. So that's the method. The method is Christ. But consider the motive of this power. Um, Paul gets crazy with adjectives here. Notice what happens. Paul says that God is rich in mercy. He's motivated by the great love with which he loved us. Later on in verse 7, he says, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul is grasping after adjective after adjective, trying to describe the heart of God. This is the heart of God. The very heart. What is he like? And why is he doing this? Because so often we think God is middle class in mercy. So often we think His grace goes about a mile. No, no, no. It's immeasurable. Like we can measure from here to the nearest star. It's 5.88 trillion miles. Thank you, Google. But God's grace is immeasurable. And why is he doing this? Because we are so prone to shrink his love. We are so prone to think that our sins are too much for God's mercy. Our condition, our world is too, too far great for him to do anything. Our situation is too remote for him to do anything. But notice the whole the whole paragraph turns on the beginning of verse 4 when it says, but God. In other words, think about that. We're dead, we're enslaved, and God initiates. Think about that. In spite of our condition, and because of it, and because of it, And here's what that means. That means the gospel is so different than everything else in the world, because listen, the solution is outside of you. It's outside of you, and it's revealed in the person of Christ. That's the gift, or excuse me, that's the power. All right, Thirdly the gift. Look at verses eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Paul says that the way that you are united to this mystery in Christ, it's not about what you do. It's, it's not about you achieving. It is about you receiving. And that is a big difference. Most of us are hardwired in our relationships in our world to think that how we relate to others, institutions, our work, our other relationships, it's based on what we do. It's based on what we achieve. My, my oldest daughter, she's applying to colleges. And, you know, you got to give your transcripts. you got to you know, send your ACT, SAT, whatever. And based on that, right, based on how you do, you get accepted. But that's not how this works with God. In other words, think about this for a moment. God is not interested in you this morning, stopping doing bad things and doing good things, or that he can finally look at you and say, I love you enough to do something. God is not interested in you coming to church every Sunday, so then finally after five Sundays, he's going to finally look down and say, okay, now I'll have mercy on you. Do you understand? He's already had mercy on you. The gift is there. It's just simply receiving it. And the instrument that Paul says it's by faith. It's relying on what Jesus has done in his life, death and resurrection. It's reliance. It's because of what he's done. And this morning you know, as Paul is writing this towards Christians, obviously this has implications for those of you this morning who are not Christians. I want you to understand this. God loves you. He has revealed himself in the mystery found in Christ. And he has had mercy towards you in the person and work of Christ. Do you see that mercy? Do you see the kindness? Do you see the love? The only thing, that you need to do is simply receive the gift. It is faith alone, in the mystery alone. That's it. Let me ask you this morning, if that's you, what is holding you back? Because, friends, don't you see in this passage, it's very clear that nothing is holding him back. So here's the gospel. The gospel takes dead people. and He makes them alive. But lastly, he makes them for good. Look at, look at verse 10. Now we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Um, let me put it this way: the, the next like four weeks, we're going to see what that looks like on the street level. But suffice it to say, this is going to press into every aspect of your life. He has made you for good in your marriage, if you're married. He's made you for good in your vocation. He's made you for good in the church. He's made you for good in the spaces you inhabit in your neighborhoods and your workplaces it's everywhere that's where he's made you for good that's where it applies but just for a moment cuz paul doesn't go back to this i want you to consider this you're his workmanship think about that for a moment that's what the text says you're you're his workmanship um at our home, we have a, a really large table. And it was given to us by a friend a little over a year ago, um, and he made the table. He built it. And it's made out of ash, and so he clearly, it didn't just arrive like that, right? Like, I mean, he took the boards, he sanded it, he cut it, he, he formed it, and it's a really great table. In fact, it's a little bit big for our space, but we still, we love it because can sit so many people around it. And in most days, I sit down at that table and I eat with the most important people in my life. And that's my friend's workmanship. It's wonderful. And friends, that's a table. (laughs) It's just a table. But such value, right? Do you understand this? If you're in Christ this morning, do you understand you have been brought from being an object of God's wrath to now an instrument in his hand made for good in this world. So, who are you? Let me close with this. The band can come up. Um, Henry Nowen. He says there's three big lies that we believe about ourselves, about identity. Here they are. He says, I am what I do. That's lie number one. Lie number two, I am what I have. Lie number three, I am what others think of me. Hear this. In Christ... This is who you are. You once were dead. You have now been made alive. And you are his workmanship. Made for good. Believe it. That's what you're called to. Let's pray. Father, would you um, shape us and form us by this gospel, to be your people. Father, would you expose the lies that we believe about who we are, and would you reveal to us more deeply and more profoundly and capture our imagination with who you are and what you have done in Christ? We ask this all in your name, amen.